Hey everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I'm Connor Daniels. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast hosted by STOA alumni and occasionally also an NCSCA alumnus when my STOA alum ditches me, where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this episode, we'll be discussing George Orwell's chilling novel, 1984. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Well, so two things probably are apparent. Uh, first of all, we are not talking about Babette's Feast, which is what we promised you. Uh, it's Raymond's fault. It really is his fault this time. It is not actually my fault. It is his fault. We were supposed to record, and he is in North Carolina and decided not to record with me. So, uh, instead, I frantically, <laughs> frantically texted my friend Connor here and uh, told him he could pick whatever topic he wanted, and he picked 1984. Uh, so, Connor, do you want to introduce yourself um, and explain the many virtues that led me to, to ask you to guest host on this podcast? <laughs> well, I don't know about virtues, uh, but as has been stated, I, I did compete in the NCFCA when I was in high school, and then, uh, like Sophie, went to Hillsdale College. Uh, now I teach uh, also in Bloomfield Hills, uh, except that I teach history instead of Latin. Um, and as you might guess from my picking 1984, uh, I don't tend to have a particularly optimistic personality. I that's <laughs> worth mentioning. Uh, it's also interesting that we're talking about 1984 because Connor and I had lots of conversations in college about this particular novel, so this may be a reprise of some old conversations that we've had about the book. It's true. Uh, so first of all, to get into a little bit of a summary... Um, a lot of you have probably heard the term Orwellian or you've heard about 1984 before. Um, but just in case you don't know the plot yet or you haven't read the novel, uh, it centers around Winston Smith, who is a low-ranking member of the ruling party in London in the nation of Oceania. This is at some unspecified point in the future. We don't actually know when this is happening, but it's futuristic. And in Oceania, everyone is watched all the time by the party's leader, known as Big Brother. Oh, I just realized, I said we don't know when it happens. It happens in 1984. <laughs> I was wondering about that one. In the title. Oops. The book was written in 45, I think. So that would okay. have been about 30 years in the future. Yeah. Thank you, Connor. Yes, this is true. Okay, so it takes place in 1984, but that's the future when it was written. Um, everyone's watched constantly by the party's leader, uh, who's just known as Big Brother. He's sort of this, um, looming figure who you never actually really meet throughout the course of the novel. Uh, they're watched through these telescreens, so it's lots of electronic surveillance, basically. Um, the party has laws against thought crime, which is a term coined by Orwell. The idea is that thinking itself can be a crime, um... And the, the, the party is implementing what they call newspeak, which is this idea that you can't say or even think rebellious things. Um, and there's lots of terms throughout the novel, like uh, doublethink 
thinking one thing and another thing at the same time. There's this emphasis on the idea that the party is controlling everything that you do or say or think, that you cannot have your own free thoughts. So Winston Smith, uh, who works for the party, is fixated on this person named O'Brien, who is a character who's a, a member of the party, but Winston thinks that he is part of the Brotherhood, which is this rebel group um, working secretly against Big Brother. So he's fixated on O'Brien, thinks that probably he's a rebel, but is too afraid to approach him. Uh, Winston uh, develops feelings for a woman named Julia. Um, they start having an illegal affair. They have to meet in secret. And throughout this time, Winston is having recurring nightmares about rats and doesn't know why. Um, then one day, uh, towards the climax of the novel, O'Brien, the, the party member who Winston thinks is a rebel, summons Winston, says that he's a member of the Brotherhood, gets Winston to confess his hatred of the party, but oh no, actually it turns out O'Brien was a party spy the whole time, and Winston is taken to what's called the Ministry of Love, uh, which has been this looming background force the whole time. But it turns out that the Ministry of Love is really a torture chamber. That's where they torture um, people into submission to the, to the party. So Winston, for a while, is tortured by O'Brien to add insult to injury. And uh, O'Brien wants to try and get Winston to admit or say that he believes that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Because Winston earlier in the novel says that freedom is the freedom to say that 2 plus 2 equals 4. So O'Brien is trying to get Winston to say 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4, it equals 5. Winston breaks down and admits that, but that's not enough. O'Brien says you have to believe it, and Winston's like, I want to believe, but I don't know how to believe. Um, he hangs tight for a while, he, he holds on. But in the end, when uh, O'Brien confronts Winston with this cage of rats, puts a cage of rats on his face. And the idea is that the rats are, are hungry and are going to be released and allowed to eat his face. And that's what finally breaks Winston um, after his nightmares of rats, the entire novel. And he, he begs O'Brien to torture Julia instead of him. And so it's that betrayal that gives O'Brien what he wants. Uh, he lets Winston go. Winston returns to the party. He's cured of his love, question mark. Was it ever really love? We don't know, uh, for Julia. And the novel ends with this quote, which I think is well-written enough that I want to read it to you. He gazed up at the enormous face. Forty years it had taken him to learn what kind of smile was hidden beneath the dark mustache. Oh, cruel, needless misunderstanding. Oh, stubborn, self-willed exile from the loving breast. Two gin-scented tears trickled down the sides of his nose. But it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. And that's the ending. It's really depressing. Thanks, Connor, for picking it. You're welcome. <laughs> so, first of all, obviously there's a lot going on in this novel. Um, I want to start with the most obvious question, and oddly enough, maybe the easiest one to answer. Um, these days, what people usually think about when they think about 1984 is they're thinking about governmental electronic surveillance, which is often called Orwellian, and that's where the term Orwellian even comes from. And what that means is the government has its eyes on everything that you're doing, um, and it's, you know, looking through your webcams or whatever. So uh, I think the first question that's relevant here is that idea of the novel, the idea that everyone's being watched, that uh, your your thought is being controlled, that view of totalitarianism, is that Orwellian vision of Big Brother and totalitarian control 
really realistic? Is that something that we are correct to be afraid of or that Orwell was correct to be afraid of in the real world? What do you think? Uh, probably yes. I mean, at least when it comes to their surveillance side of things. Um, Orwell, I think, was remarkably farsighted in that regard. I mean, the description is in the novel is that the surveillance centers on what he calls telescreens, which are placed in, in really every room of a house and every major, major public area. And they can both you know, send and receive video and they're on all the time by law. And so everyone is constantly receiving the, the propaganda messages from the government and everybody is constantly being observed or maybe observed, right? You don't really know. Maybe nobody is watching your camera at any particular moment, but the fact that they might be uh, is enough to, to cause most reasonable people in 1984 to be you know, too afraid to ever say or, or voice anything uh, you know, about the government that would be uh, looked upon unfavorably by the powers that be um, you know, even even in private. Um, and today, of course, I mean, we have the, the technological means to um, to have, you know, live video recording uh, in our pockets everywhere. Um, you know, has that been used by any government to to the degree of 1984? Well, maybe not, but, but some places have come close. I mean, I, I think uh, were you to look at, you know, what's going on in China today with facial re recognition software and uh, the ways in which that's uh, you know all linked into their social credit system, right? If you have somebody who's tweets something or posts something on the uh, Chinese social messaging service Weibo, uh, I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, their 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 tweet can be deleted, but also their social credit score, which is kind of like a a credit card credit score, except for everything you do in life, for getting jobs, for getting into school, uh, what have you, can be uh, reduced, and they can be you know punished in that way. Um, and, uh, you know, if you want to know where they are, well, you can, can you know, enter the, the database that the police systems have for the major cities in China. And if you walk down the sidewalk recently uh, and your face has been captured by a camera, a computer can identify that very rapidly. So, uh, so yeah, I think that that at least part of the control is, is a real concern. It's interesting. So Winston says early on, I think I mentioned earlier, um, I think, I think the full quote is, above all else, freedom is the freedom to say that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And that sort of introduces this whole idea of freedom of speech. And then the idea that the government might ask you to say that 2 plus 2 equals 5. And Winston doesn't, he even breaks and he agrees, you know, pays lip service to this idea that 2 plus 2 equals 5. And then... Uh, that's not enough. He has to really believe it. Um, that extent of the government wanting to have control over your thought, um, is that something that you think we see any, any analogy for in the modern world? Is that something, or, or even something that could be a concern at some point beyond just the idea of the government watching us or big, big brother is watching you, um, but the idea of the, the government wanting to have control over what you think, to what extent is that a concern or a real concern? Yeah, that's <laughs> the more complicated question, I think. Um, and so, so one sort of plot detail that I think gets at this in the book is when, um, well, the reason why uh, the, the torture, the final torture that causes uh, Winston to succumb to O'Brien is the cage of rats is because that rats have always been uh, Winston's worst fear since childhood. And that's connected with uh, you know, a memory that he has uh, from 
presumably the Second World War. I mean, the novel's written just after that time period in which uh, Winston's mother um, dies. And, and so, you know, that's related to, um, you know, seeing rats at the time and being, being afraid of the rats. And um, the, the thing there is that O'Brien knows this, right? This is a, a memory which, to Winston's recollection, he hasn't told to anyone. And yet O'Brien somehow knows uh, what's locked deep inside of his own, his own, you know, psyche. Um, so that kind of description where, where O'Brien is almost a godlike knowledge of who, um, of who Winston is and what motivates him is, uh, probably a little further, I think, than, than we could realistically go. There is a modern analog though, I think, in the, in the use of algorithms, um, to determine what, what people see and read online. Um, that could be frighteningly accurate. I mean, I, I can, you know, think of a number of instances just recently where I've talked to someone uh, in person about a thing that I found interesting and to my knowledge hadn't hadn't looked up any time recently and then, you know, a day later I'm browsing on YouTube and the first thing that's recommended is a video about the very subject I've been talking about a day earlier. Um, and I think many of us can identify with that experience and whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, listening to your conversations or whether it's just that uh, it could reasonably infer that you'd be interested in that based on your, your prior search history and it was right. Um, either way, it's a pretty scary power of prediction. Um, if not a knowledge of your past memory, at least it it gets at the the same sort of things, right? What do you want to see, and how do we get better and better at predicting what that is? Yeah, I think that's true. And the whole the idea of freedom of speech being something essential to your humanity is something that comes up through the whole book. And I think, in a way, that's why when Winston both betrays Julia and then also gives up his own character. So he gives up his hatred of Big Brother. And so the final line, he loved Big Brother, is Winston not just having betrayed Julia, but then having betrayed himself. That the novel at least sees a difference between you as a person saying you believe something and then not really believing it and really converting really changing your mind which actually I, I think has a connection to a topic we talked about on this podcast recently which was shizaku endo's silence connor have you read it or do you know no. what it is no I, I don't okay um it's about a uh priest a jesuit priest who goes to japan to try to um to because he has a mentor who uh, the rumor is that his mentor, under persecution in Japan, has apostatized. Hmm. And so the main character um, goes because he thinks that he can do what his mentor didn't. And um, he, his parishioners are tortured in front of him for a long time. And there's this whole question of, is he going to apostatize? Is he going to trample on the, the Fumi? So is he going to trample on the image of Christ? And he does it in the end after being you know, shown his parishioners who are being tortured. Um, and there's definitely in that novel a distinction being shown between saying saying something for the purposes of getting someone to stop torturing people that you care about. Because when he steps on the image of Christ, um, there's this question of whether or not he really gave up his faith, right? Mm -hmm. There's his internal faith and then there's his act of rejecting the faith which to be fair he you know he adopts a japanese lifestyle then for the rest of his life and he never prays in public again and so it's said that he has given up his faith completely but then the movie ends with this suggestion that maybe you know he he's buried with 
a cross that his wife gives him after he dies. So there's the suggestion that maybe he kept his faith and maybe he converted his wife too. Um, and obviously that's a whole discussion about whether or not that makes faith too private a right. matter and, and not a matter of action. Right. But either way, I think that speaks to the same idea that this novel speaks to, which is the question of to be truly, if, if you're a human being and you believe something, Orwell seems to be saying that um, as long as you believe something, you can say that you don't. You can say that you believe something that you don't believe, or you can say that you uh, do believe something that you don't. Um, and you haven't betrayed yourself until you really don't believe it. Until your whole mind is changed. Right. Do you think that's true? Is that accurate? It seems to ring true to me in some ways, but then also when I think about it in terms of silence, it seems like that priest, um, that if he says he doesn't believe in Christ and he denies Christ repeatedly and he lives as someone, you know, lives uh, according to a religion that is not Christianity, you know, what's the difference? Like, if it looks like a loaf of bread, isn't it a loaf of bread? Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, so, the, I mean, the difficulty there is, it seems like almost there, there are two kinds of questions, right? The one is, is it, is it a, a betrayal of, you know, some principle that you've held dear to publicly deny it, even if privately you still maintain that view? Um, and, and I would say there I think it, it, it is a betrayal, right? It's a betrayal at least of um, the position that you formally, you know, would take publicly, um, I think what makes the, and the reason why Orwell mentions, um, you know, this, it makes such a big deal of the fact that Winston has to really believe, uh, what it is that he says when he, when he says that, um, you know, he loves big brother is, is not so much that it's like not a, somehow a transgression of, uh, what he previously said to, to, to go back on his views, mm -hmm. but it's that that alone doesn't show that his identity as a human person has been erased. That just shows that he is, like all human beings, fallible, and when put under tremendous pressure, uh, is willing to lie about what he actually thinks. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't himself, like, that doesn't do anything to make him less human or, or any less what he thought he was um, in terms of his nature. The difficulty with, with, with him actually believing it is it means that, that O'Brien has, has now gotten inside Winston's head. Mm -hmm. And that Winston doesn't even have control over the things that he thinks. Right, so that power is able to compel not just your behavior, not just your words, but your thoughts themselves. And this is something O'Brien um, at one point says explicitly, um, a quote from the novel that I think is worth um, our looking at. Um, when O'Brien's talking to Winston, he says, We control life, Winston, at all its levels. You are imagining that there is something called human nature, which will be outright, outraged by what we do and will turn against us. But we create human nature. Men are infinitely malleable. Um, so this is the this is the thesis, right? Orwell is is attempting to to demonstrate, or at least get us to worry about in the novel, that given enough power, right, we can reshape human nature into our own image or into whatever image the party wishes to uh, conform us to. I think that's the thing about the novel that I'm not sure I buy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I, yeah. I'm actually, I'm kind of with Orwell up until the point where Winston is broken sort of beyond repair. 
where he's reshaped or recreated. And that's where I think silence is maybe seems more accurate to me. Where I really, I understand why a priest under those circumstances would do what he does. Why he would apostatize, at least outwardly. And I think the question of whether or not that's um, sinful is difficult. That's a that that's a question that's not easy to answer. Um, and that clearly he, that priest, has uh, questions of his own about the world and about what he believes, and it's not black and white. But Winston is so completely transformed by this act of torture. Um, and the the scene of the torture scene, which goes on for a while, it's long is really brilliantly written and it's really good. But then at the end, the fact that the, the betrayal of Julia completely erases all of his feelings for her when he was willing to put up with a lot of torture for her and suddenly it's gone, it's snuffed out. And then the fact that he transforms and he loves Big Brother in the end, not just accepts it, not just is willing to conform the fact that his nature is completely changed i don't i don't know if that seems real i don't know if people are really like that hmm. yeah well i mean the the assumption built in again is that the human nature that they have is malleable so mm-hmm. you know if we were to look at this through a christian lens i think we'd have to begin by disagreeing with the assumption because human nature um you know, if it's something that's created by God, is not something that's malleable uh, by man, at least not to that degree. Um, so that might be be worth considering. Um, but that really gets at the whole question of like, what 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 is human nature, and what like what means does the party use in the novel to control and shape it? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. We- because what Go I ahead. so you know a, a very classical answer to like what what is a human being would be to say well man is a rational animal right fair enough and and you know the Greek word for reason is also the same as the the word for for word or speech logos um, so you know we have um, man as as rational animal man as speaking animal um, another perfectly traditional answer would be to to look to um, sort of the medieval conception of things uh, especially someone like Dante and say that what makes men who we are is that we are our creatures that love. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're the, the animal that loves. And those are the two things in the novel that the party consistently subverts. Um, it subverts right love from the very beginning because all marriages have to be, you know, registered within the party, made within the party. Um, you know, sex is described as something that's a duty to the party, which is the reason why Winston is so unhappy in his marriage, right? Because his wife uh, doesn't actually love him, doesn't even want to, to be with him sexually, just wants to do her duty to the party. Uh, and to Winston, you know, obviously you know, hates that the relationship that he's in. Um, and the party does a very, you know, deliberate job of indoctrinating people in that from a young age. Uh, and then the other thing that's under attack is human reason or speech, right? And this is done through Newspeak, right? If we rewrite the language so that we don't even, that people don't even know the words for the ideas that they might want to express that would be subversive, then, you know, their thought has to flow in, in uh, accepted channels because their thought, you know, can only use the words that they have um, because thought is expressed in speech. Um, and one other detail about the novel, right? Winston works in what's called the Ministry of Truth, whose job mm-hmm. is censorship. Uh, and, you know, again, paradoxically, right? The Ministry of, of Love is about torture. The Ministry of Truth is about 
uh, you know, censorship and, and lies and propaganda. Uh, and so Winston's job, uh, job, and he knows this is going on, is whenever the party uh, changes its view on something, all of the old newspapers that contain the old view are brought up from the archives and rewritten to conform to the new view. And then the old copies are, you know, sent to the incinerator, uh, what's called the memory hole. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, if you've ever heard the expression, right, mm -hmm. <laughs> that went down the memory hole, it means it's, it's, you know, people have sort of forgotten about it and swept it under the rug. Uh, and the presumption there is, well, if we, you know, if we have the technology, uh, why not? You know, why, you know, what would prevent somebody from controlling the very, you know, uh, building blocks that people have to put together their, their thoughts and ideas? So that's the challenge, right? And I think that's, that's why, you know, Orwell's novel is so compelling is that it's not just sort of a... Uh, you know, off the cuff, well, you know, human nature is malleable and, mm -hmm. and we should worry about totalitarianism, but it's actually a very uh, compelling horror story, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, well, you know, Orwell is begging you to prove him wrong, right? What, what exactly would stop this from happening? Yeah. Well, especially given the fact that I think one of the things that's compelling about Orwell's vision is especially the idea of newspeak, the idea that if you control the language, then you control the way that people think. Um, I think that is something that we see happening, uh, you know, no matter whoever's in control, this isn't meant to be a political statement, but no matter what, no matter who is the figure in power who is speaking, um, the language that that person uses changes the way that they think about the world, and it changes the way that their followers think about the world. And the more that a certain... A phrase or word is unacceptable, the more that that changes the way we think about the thing. I think one really simple, probably not super controversial for this crowd, example would be uh, talking about something being pro-choice versus being pro-life. Um, if in one camp it's not okay to say, to use the term pro-life um, or pro-abortion, you have to say pro-choice, then that changes the way your brain thinks about abortion, that it's something that celebrates choice or the choice of a woman versus something that um, is uh, pro-abortion, pro which then would suggest that it's pro-death. Um, and especially saying pro-life obviously is not okay because uh, that means that the other option is, is murder or death or something really negative. So I think that that is something that we see to a certain extent even if we don't see quite the same level of human nature being completely broken. This is a novel where the human spirit can be broken beyond repair. Um, and that's a thing that I don't know if that's so true. But it is true that humans can be broken, and the ways that Big Brother does it, uh, those aren't um, untrue. I think those are real, real things that really happen. I, I mentioned Julia a little bit earlier. Um, the fact that Winston's betrayal of Julia is really the thing that uh, breaks him in the end, that breaks his spirit. Uh, shifting focus a little bit, what what is Orwell saying about love hmm. at all? Um, I'm going to see to you a little bit because I think you've done a lot of research on this topic that I have not done. <laughs> a little. I, I wrote a, a paper on it once. Um... And it's an interesting question, right, because, uh, I mean, to start out with, right, to, to make the, the obvious point is, I, I think pretty much everyone who's read 1984 would say, okay, you know, the most brilliant thing about it is probably uh, Newspeak. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in fact, you know, you could just read the appendix, which is all about, about the, the principles of Newspeak, and that, that in and of itself would be a great, you know, commentary on the dangers of totalitarianism. 
Um, the love story is often overlooked, um, including by people who are, are good readers of literature. Um, you know, I, I very rarely ever find myself disagreeing with C.S. Lewis, uh, but this is a point where I do. Right, C.S. Lewis uh, really likes Animal Farm, from what I know, but he wrote an essay on uh, George Orwell in which uh, he didn't have very polite things to say about... <laughs> well, they were polite. They, they, they just weren't favorable, right, about, about 1984's love story. Um, what, what Lewis had to say was, was this. He said that Orwell you know, grew up in a time of what was very inaccurately called anti-Puritanism, when people who wanted in Lawrence's, D.H. Lawrence's characteristic phrase, to do dirt on sex, were among the stock enemies. And so wishing to blacken the villains as much as possible, Orwell decided to fling this charge against them, as well as all the relevant charges. Um, so in other words, basically, Lewis's take is, the love story is gratuitous. Uh, it's there to you know, titillate the reader, to get them interested, because all popular novels have to have a love story. And really, it's just a kind of irrelevant charge against totalitarianism. Like, um, and, and partly, I think this is... Um, well, it's it, it's fair at one level in that, um, well, no, I actually don't agree with that. I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's well, fair at all. Well, not um, to interrupt, but when I, but it, when but I read the novel the first yeah. time, I did feel that way because the, this is the picture of the novel in my head. It's interesting beginning where they talk about Newspeak and the way that Big Brother is watching you and all that right. boring middle that involves lots of the affair Right. And then really exciting ending with the torture sequence, which is very right. well written. And, and I guess that's you know, sort of superficially plausible. And when we think about real totalitarian regimes, uh, we, we think very much about the other side of the story, right? The, the ways in which they control the media. Um, you know, think of the newspapers Pravda and Izvestia and the Soviet Union, which uh, you know, published the official party position on something. Or um, you know, in uh, East Germany, right? the Stasi, the secret police, their, uh, he the head of the Stasi at one point his interrogation room, in which he would torture prisoners, was named, uh, was specifically numbered Room 101, after the room in which uh, Winston in the novel 1984 is tortured by O'Brien. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was an intentional choice that he made, right? Um, so, uh, you know, these these real regimes were um, were really uh, brutal on that, that kind of surveillance front. Actually, uh, a great film to watch, uh, R-rated film, so depending on the audience, we might, might have to issue that, that qualifier, but... <laughs> Uh, nonetheless, a brilliant film called The Lives of Others mm. um, about the, the surveillance that the Stasi does in um, East Germany. And it's it's really brutal um, and a really beautifully done story. But like 1984, I mean, it's, it's really um, horrific to sit through mm -hmm. um, and to realize that it's based on a true story. Um, so, yeah, what about, the, what about the love scene? I mean, do you think, do you think Winston loves Julia? Uh, I don't know. Well, I'm... I'm tempted to say not, right? Because he betrays her in the end, and that betrayal then erases erases any feelings that he has for her or any desire that he has for her. Uh, when they meet in the end, the scene, the the dialogue between them is that he tells her that he betrayed her in the Ministry of Love, and she's like, "Yeah, I betrayed you too," and that's sort of it. <laughs> they they move on. They don't. Right have any desire to continue their previous relationship. Um, and so, on the one hand, I want to say that love that's broken through sin and then cannot return or cannot come back, that's completely broken by an external force, seems like that's not really love. But also, right. is that just the way Orwell thinks about love? Does he think that love is... So does he think it's the opposite of... Uh, Amor non omnia winket. <laughs> uh, love doesn't conquer everything. It maybe conquers most things, 
but it doesn't conquer the party and right. it doesn't conquer the the external will of a totalitarian regime mm-hmm. um and if that's the way Orwell thinks about it, then maybe he means he means to say that Winston really does love Julia. It's just that that love isn't enough. But from my perspective, it seems like it's not. It's not really love. Yeah. And I think that was my reaction when I read it for the first time in high school. And I think that um, there's still a part of that that's valid in that there are things in the relationship between Winston and Julia that are clearly lacking. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I guess the one thing that might be helpful is, is to use even C.S. Lewis's own vocabulary for talking about love, right, in his book, The Four Loves. Uh, and I, the, the two most relevant categories from that book are, are eros, which is, you know, the romantic or sexual attraction that uh, Winston and Julia seem to have for each other, um, and then charity, Christian love, uh, which is a very different thing, um, but not, not unrelated, right? So one way of thinking about the novel might be just, you know, to, before we even get to what, what Orwell thinks about love is, is... Because of course Orwell is not not a Christian writer, mm-hmm. um, so is what he portrays, you know, at least a true dis- depiction of Eros, right? Is it is it clear from the novel that he's trying to make Winston and Julia's affair into something that's true love and mm-hmm. not uh, with a fault? And I and I think that he actually is, right? So so here's the evidence for that, right? At the beginning of the novel, um, and and throughout, which is something that that C.S. Lewis points out when he writes about Orwell. Uh, the knowledge, the kind of love that Orwell, uh, or not Orwell, uh, Winston, his character, and, and mm-hmm. Julia have is um, very you know, physical and, and sexual, but not much beyond that, right? So if you, if you, the descriptions in the novel are, um, you know, at one point Winston asks her, you know, when they are, are having their affair, do you like doing this? I don't mean simply me, I mean the thing in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you, do you love the, the pleasure that, that is there from sex rather than you know, me, myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would be kind of a perversion, right, of Eros, to say that the, the desire is not for the beloved, but for the thing that the beloved provides, right, a kind of use mm-hmm. rather than an enjoyment of the other. Um, and uh, the, the novel's description, right, focuses on the, the, the physicality of, of the two people that are there, right, describing um, their bodies in very uh, kind of dispassionate terms, right, talking about um, you know, what, what they look like, uh, mm-hmm. as, as human beings, but not so much their, their characters or personal or personalities. Um, and the fear that Winston has after he first realizes that Julia loves him is that, quote, the white youthful body might slip away from him, right? Not that he might lose her, but that the body might slip away from him. So it's, it's clearly a very physical desire at the beginning. Um, but I think the thing that makes the affair so compelling and then the betrayal, uh, which at the end, if we haven't said this already, right, the betrayal is, when the cage of rats is placed on, on Winston's head and he's faced with his worst fear, um, it finally comes into his head that the thing that O'Brien wants him to say and what actually does get him out of the torture is to say, do it to Julia, right? This worst fear that I have, do it to Julia, her, not me. Um, and that's the betrayal, right? To that, that he's willing to subject her to this rather than, than he himself go through it. Um, but the thing that makes that betrayal, I think, so uh, devastating when you read the novel, or should, is that the love does become much more complex than physicality. So um, even when they first meet, right, there's this scene, um, and, and Winston initially does not like uh, Julia. He confesses to her at one point later in the novel that uh, he wanted to, to rape her at one point because he hated her so much. She was part of the, I forget what this calls it, the anti-sex league or whatever. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's like the, the Hitler youth of the, the big, uh, big Brother in 1984, right? They have their special uniforms and... Um, you know, the ones who believe in all the party orthodoxy, and so Winston's this 
uh, inner rebel, right? He thinks he's rebelling against the party in his mind, even if he's not saying these things publicly. And so he hates Julia for, for this, you know, um, persona that she has of somebody who's very orthodox. Um, and he finds out later that she's not. But, but the reason, uh, the way in which they meet each other is a, uh, Julia arranges for them to run into one another as uh, they're walking down the hall. And uh, she, she stumbles onto an arm that she's banded so it looks like she's hurt. And then when Winston helps her up, she slips him a note right, that says, I love you. And that's when their, their affair begins. And the way Orwell describes that, he says, in the moment when Winston had seen her fall on the bandaged arm, it had been as though he felt the pain in his own body. Uh, so Winston, mm. even at that moment, sort of identifies himself with her. Um, and it's sort of a foreshadowing, too, of the torture, right? That, mm -hmm. that when something happened to her that was painful, he felt the pain in his own body. Uh, whereas by the end of the novel, he's willing to say, no, you know, don't subject me to this pain, do it to Julia. Um, as if that would be better. So there is, you know, it's not it's not quite the two becoming one flesh there, right? But mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's drawing on the same sort of imagery. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the, the bulk of the middle of the novel is them trying to, to get in touch with the rebellion. And one of the things they do is they go and take uh, an apartment, right, in the, the section of town um, inhabited by the, the proles, where they can go and have their affair uh, more, more secretly uh, and try to establish what, what's really a sort of home together, right? I mean, they... Um, you know, they go and, and of course, you know, they're, they're there for the affair, but also, um, Julia manages to scrounge up, uh, some food, right, and good coffee that they're not able to get with the party rations. And so they share a meal together, right? So the two sort of essential kind of, uh, features of, of home life, right? The bed and the board are both, both there, the, the table. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, they, you know, they share that together. So... Uh, and then it's at that point in the novel when Winston says, uh, or realizes that the nature of his desire for her had changed. Uh, that's a direct quote. Um, he says, Winston felt like, quote, they were a married couple of 10 years standing and that she had some place where they could be alone together without feeling the obligation to make love every time they met. Um, that Julia's touch, he says at one point, invites, uh, quote, not desire, but affection. Mm. Um, so there is this sort of morphing, right, between a, a mm -hmm. love that's initially almost purely sexual to a love that's uh, much more well-rounded, and, and the sexual element never leaves it, mm -hmm. um, nor, would I, nor do I think we should expect it to, but just that um, it's, it's rounded out by a desire to have a life together, um, to share in, in joys and sorrows, and to have a life that's private and away from the observations of the party, which mm -hmm. is, um, you know, a, a true eros, right, a desire to be one with one another. Um, to, to unite with the beloved. So I, 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 I would make the case, right, that Orwell is doing the best that he can in the secular context to portray the love that matures as something that is, is full, right, even though it comes from a corrupt place. And this is what makes the novel seem, and I think in the first two parts, kind of hopeful, right, because the party seems to control everything in chapter one, and yet, right, love mm -hmm. here is emerging in the ashes, right, and it's it about finds to a way. and then, you know, smack right at the end. <laughs> comes uh the you know the conclusion that um, Amor non omnia wink it. <laughs> yeah yeah um so that's my take uh i do mm -hmm. think you know so so at this point right you're faced with a dilemma all right because either you have to say um agreeing with orwell right that this love well you can't so you know based on that argument you, you couldn't just say well the love is is, is mere you know sexual uh, sexuality which is what c.s lewis says right he calls mm -hmm. it mere venus um, so, of course, the ending isn't particularly a problem for, for Lewis because he can just say, well, you know, this is just mere sexual attraction, so of course it collapses when O'Brien puts it to the test. But if you think it's more than that, 
then you're sort of either forced to the conclusion that Orwell is right um, and that power triumphs over love, mm -hmm. which is a difficult conclusion to reach and I think wrong, mm -hmm. um, or you have to say that there's something missing in the love from the beginning that we haven't taken into account. Um, but that's kind of difficult to do too, right? Given that, mm -hmm. that argument, right? It's, it's hard to say what's, uh, what's there. Um, and I think if we were to look for that, um, well, because the novel is compelling, right? And so because mm -hmm. the novel, um, I think at least pulls the reader along. Um, and so it's hard yeah. to say, well, oh, this is, you know, this is so unrealistic. Winston would never do that. Um, I mean, certainly that's what we would like to think, but, but what gives us cause to think that? And, um, I think what I would point to is just the, the absence of uh, Christian love, of grace. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a point that I think Orwell himself makes uh, more or less unwittingly. I mean, uh, or, or at least seemingly unwittingly. It's an, it's an offhand remark that Winston does mention at one point that he's never darkened the door of a church. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, this is an affair. Right? He breaks the vows that he has to his own wife, Catherine, in order to, to carry this on. Yeah. Um, so there is, you know, a human love that's very full at one level in terms of, um, you know, eros, but it's missing that kind of divine grace. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there is a statement that human nature, right, sans divine grace in the world that Orwell inhabits, um, you know, is subject to falling apart to power in that way. Um, but perhaps that's the very thing that's missing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really true, especially in the sense that um, I, I think that the thing that rings true, even if it's an uncomfortable truth, is that uh, humans can love incredibly selfishly. Um, right. That when humans love one another, it's not just easy, uh, but maybe even there's something natural about um, saying that you love someone and then not, not really loving them, but loving yourself, loving the thing that they bring you. Um, in Till We Have Faces, by C.S. Lewis, since we're talking about C.S. Lewis. Sure. Uh, Oral, the the main character, there's this man that she um, has affection for her entire life. And then towards the end of her life, as they're getting older, she's the queen of this country and she keeps sending him off to do things for her because she knows that it's taking him away from his family, away from his wife and his children. And she likes that. She likes having him be there to serve her and not his own family. Um, and there's this quote where it says that, uh, or she, writing about herself later, she says, um, a love like that can grow to become nine-tenths hatred and still call itself love. Yeah. So there's something real about that. Well, yeah. And, and C.S. Lewis gets at that in another book, too, uh, Screwtape Letters. Mm -hmm. um, well, and in The Four Loves, right? So in The Four Loves, uh, when, when, which is a nonfiction work by C.S. Lewis, what he says about Eros is that um, the danger in Eros is it setting itself up as an idol mm -hmm. um, to where the love itself is the thing worshipped rather than, um, you know, or, or that, you know, in, in both parties, you know, devotion to each other, it becomes idolatrous to the exclusion of God. And then... Um, you know, it's sort of a, there's a mutual use, right, of a, a desiring mm -hmm. of each other for their own sake, but not directed to any higher purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, to, to shift from Lewis to Kierkegaard, right, who wrote about love, uh, the, the love of God, and God being the middle term in our human loves that has to, to mediate where the true love that we can have is, is to help um, those that we love to love God, and the love that they have for us is to 
to help us to love God. Um, because you know, the alternative is love is all about them satisfying my desires and me satisfying theirs, but we're finite. So, and our desires are not so finite. So mm -hmm. if we long for something infinite, if we long for God and try to put someone else in those, in those shoes and make them an idol, um, you know, that's bound to, to fall short and to breed resentment for the fact that it, it does fall short. Mm -hmm. um, but in the screw tape letters, right, we see a picture of that sort of fallen idolatrous love in the way in which uh, screw tape loves wormwood. Right? It's, a, mm -hmm. it's a devouring demonic love that says, you know, I, I love you in the way that I love a casserole. Right? Yes. It's, it's worth consuming. <laughs> um, and I think we see that in 1984 too, right? Mm -hmm. Because what happens at the end of the novel is not that love is erased from the world. Mm -hmm. um, it's redirected, right? So the individual personality that Winston thinks he's constructed, including this private relationship he has with Julia and the love for her, is erased and replaced with the personality that O'Brien wants, which is for him to say, you know, I love Big Brother, mm -hmm. uh, and to mean it when he says it. And this is what, what O'Brien says um, when he tells Winston what's about to happen. Uh, O'Brien says, you will be hollow, we shall squeeze you empty, and then we shall fill you with ourselves. Mm. Um, and so this is the point, right? Where can you can you control what's, what's inside? Um, and I think there... You know, is the the assumption maybe that that is the bridge too far? Right? Mm -hmm. That, that um, perhaps it's not possible for for another human being to get fully on the inside, or at least that with divine grace such things are not possible. Yeah, that your human love, your human capacity for love, uh, has to be touched and transformed by an interaction with the transcendent. <laughs> Um, right. in order to be truly selfless, in order to not betray the beloved, <laughs> um, when it, when there's a cage of rats on your face, <laughs> um, that, 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 that's something that, that we need. And that, I, I think you're right that Orwell recognizes that even if he doesn't realize that there's a solution, mm -hmm. that there is a world in which Amor Omnia Winkit, and there is maybe a universe where, um, Winston and Big Brother... Our, our big brother and the totalitarian government is uh, taken down, is destroyed through the power of love, that that's possible. But I think Orwell's right that it's not really possible with the with purely human love. And that's the thing, that's the shortcoming. Um, I think that's true. I want to touch a little bit on this idea of freedom of thought. Because one thing that I think is interesting is that um, in... in Christendom in the Christian world, it's always been true that conversion by the sword, um, forcing someone to, to just say, I, you know, I'm going to be baptized or I believe in, in Jesus Christ and things like that. Obviously that's not unheard of, right. uh, but it's pretty uncommon. That's not really a way that Christianity has, has spread. And in fact, Christianity was severely persecuted, um, for a long time. Um, and so, Christianity hasn't really spread by someone forcing you to think a certain way or forcing you to say a certain thing. Um, and a couple things I think are interesting. Uh, in Acts 17, uh, the passage about the Bereans, it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. 
So I, I think it's interesting that there's this emphasis on people in the, in the New Testament receiving the word of God and they're not, they're not tortured into believing it. They're not forced to admit it. In fact, they, without any sort of opposition, examine the scriptures. They think for themselves and determine whether or not it seems reasonable what's being said to them and that that's uh, something that recommends Christianity to them is the fact that they're able themselves to to come to believe it and make that sort that that choice for themselves. Um, or in Isaiah, when uh, there's the the famous the famous passage, um, "Come now, let us reason together," says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So I think there's this emphasis in Christianity on freedom of thought. Um, not that you should be able to sit there with the Bible necessarily and just decide what you think about everything. Right. Uh, but that you are expected to come to conclusions that you believe and that you are not forced to believe that no one is tying you down and making you believe. Um, and that's even true. Speaking of Mars Hill, of Paul on Mars Hill, when he relates Christianity to the culture of the Greeks, <coughs> So what, what do you think about that idea? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that is true, right? I mean, it's not, not as though there have never been cases where uh, people were forced to believe in Christianity by this word. I, there, there are cases where that does happen, but uh, it's not, not common. It's not a, certainly it's not a part of the faith that's uh, in scripture. And mm -hmm. so, so when that does happen, it's, it's contrary to the sort of inner logic of the, the faith itself. Um, so I think, yeah, that's that's a, a valid connection to make. That um, that kind of, of freedom is well, and it's it's possible because of the kind of love, uh, and, and it's not only possible; it's necessary because of the kind of love that we are called to have for God, which is mm -hmm. the love of a, a creature that is is free, right? made in in God's image, um, and you know to sort of open up the, the can of worms that is the, the problem of evil, right? To say, well, couldn't God have just made a world in which there was never evil or sin? Um, but, but, you know, in, to, to do that sort of thing, right? The, the traditional answer is, well, he would have had to make, uh, you know, a people whose uh, choices were not, uh, to where the, the option of loving God freely was not given to them. Mm -hmm. uh, but where instead, uh, you know, everything was predetermined or, or instinctual in the way that it is for, for animals, uh, perhaps. Um, and that would be a lesser world. Uh, mm -hmm. It would be a world in which we wouldn't share in God's image and in the, the creation that God has made. Right? We couldn't be sort of sub-creators within creation, taking care of it and ordering it for God's purposes. Um, and that's something that's you know part of uh, the, the Christian faith from the, the very beginning, uh, that recognition that you know, we're, we are called to love God freely. And this doesn't mean, you know, by our own efforts or power without the aid of God. Um, but it does mean that, you know, we are, are not to be compelled by, by some other, you know, human to, to love him. Um, and that's not the, the, the gospel that we, we have. Um, but that's also because, you know, the love that we have for God is not one that erases who we are. Uh, which, again, C.S. Lewis, uh, I think, takes up, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, in... Mere Christianity, is that correct? Where he, he has that whole discussion about how, you know, the hope that we have is uh, communion with God that will be one with him and united with him in the body of Christ and, um, you know, in the, the marriage feast of the Lamb at the, the end of all things. Mm -hmm. 
and yet each of us will be most ourselves when that is the case, um, which is a topic um, that, that Lewis also comes to when he's talking of friendship uh, in the Inklings, that um, the kind of friendship they had was such that um, you know, when one of them was absent, a piece of them was, was missing because when they were all together, when they were there you know, as a group in fellowship and communion with each other, again, paradoxically, they were each brought out to the fullest extent. Um, whereas the kind of, you know, quote-unquote love that Big Brother is demanding from Winston is the kind of love that insists on uniformity, right? To, to love Big Brother is to, you know, totally empty your mind of all that is yours and replace it with all that is his. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that's not, not the kind of faith that we're called to. So, um, you know, really the, the love that Big Brother demands is, um, is an inversion of, of all that, that uh, you know, Christianity has stood for. Yeah. Well, there's maybe to, to paraphrase a little bit of what you were saying, um, in 1984, in Orwell's vision, there is no love without freedom, right? In the absence of freedom and in the absence of freedom of thought and freedom of choice, uh, love isn't there. Even in the marriages, love isn't there. And then when the only chance that love has to almost, almost survive is when Winston sort of breaks free of the control of his right. freedom. And then even that's not quite enough because there isn't enough freedom, but it's like the oxygen that the, the fire of love needs to survive. Whereas then similarly, or I guess in a, in a parallel sense in the Christian worldview, there is no, uh, there is no freedom. Well, there's no love without freedom. And I guess the other way around too, that when when you love, you do it freely, um, and so in the same way, freedom is a an oxygen that love needs to survive, um, and that Christianity gives the space for that, gives the freedom that creates the space for real love. Right, and well, true freedom is also found in loving the right things. Right. The mm -hmm. The view of slavery that's given in Paul's epistles is one where you know, we love things wrongly, or at least in the wrong degree, right, uh, at the wrong time and in the wrong way. Uh, when we're, we're bound by sin, we're bound by sin because we have wrong desires and we've fallen for things that um, St. Augustine calls in confessions counterfeit beauties, right, as opposed to true ones. Uh, and so, you know, when we, um, you know, commit uh, you know, the sin of adultery, for example, right, that's... It's not that there's not, uh, you know, a true good there in, in, in sex and in the relationships that people have with each other. Um, but it's found that, you know, that's that's evil when it's it's loved in the wrong way, uh, mm -hmm. in the wrong priority. Um, and so it's actually our loves that lead us astray. Um, and I think that part of 1984 rings true as well, that it, mm -hmm. is, it is a competition between competing loves. It's not sort of love versus something else. It's, it's true or love, love versus love hate. of God. Right. It's... Mm -hmm. it's it's not love versus hate. It's, it's love of competing things mm -hmm. um, that ultimately is at the center of the moral life and the challenges that we face. Mm -hmm. Which I think also actually goes back to, uh, I, I was thinking earlier when we were talking, like, why, why is it so important to the party that Winston really change his mind? Why mm. can't he just say that he did and sort of fall back in line? And why isn't that enough? Why shouldn't that just be okay? But I think the party has a correct understanding of the fact that uh, Winston can't... He, In order to love the right things, he has to stop loving the wrong things. 
that his his heart has to be replaced with something else and that it's his heart that matters and it's the heart of the people that matters and they have to love big brother they can't just fear him because if they just fear him there's going to be rebellion at some point it might not be now and it might not be winston but that that's going to create space for sedition. It's going yeah. to create space for what they, what they can't stand. It's going to create space for Big Brother to be overthrown. And that yeah. can't happen. So he has to be... His real loves have to be uh, quenched. <laughs> they have to be gotten rid of. And then so that they can replace it with the right loves that they want. Which is a pretty chilling view of the world. Yeah. Gotta say. Well, call it the you know totalitarian spin on Machiavelli. It's, it's not... <laughs> <laughs> the, the the wise prince Machiavelli says should should rather be feared than loved. Both if you can be, but if you have to pick, fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, Orwell would say no, you you have to be love. Uh, but of course, in 1984, that love is is founded in and enabled by the fear mm-hmm. um, that the party is able to utilize. Um, so in a, a weird sort of way, they both come together to to give the party total control. Mm-hmm. Actually, I guess the one last question then is, if Big Brother thinks that love can be compelled. And in the context of the novel, Winston's love for Big Brother is compelled. It's not born out of freedom. We were just saying that part of the point is that love needs freedom to survive. And that Winston's love for Julia can't survive without freedom. So why why can his love for Big Brother survive but isn't it a through compulsion? Kind of love, though. Okay, fair. Like, fair. I mean, I think that's that's partly the problem, right? I mean, it's it's there's a difference between you know a love that is fundamentally rooted in you know the the self or in something human or man made or maybe even the party um, that seeks you know um, either to you know to to satisfy uh, the party and makes the party into an idol and I you know I have to direct all of my energies to satisfying it. Or that in, you know, to, to turn things on its head that says, well, you know, the party has to do everything for me and satisfy all my desires. That would be mm. an alternate sort of uh, approach. And, you know, then there's a difference between that and love that, uh, you know, has God as the middle term, right? Because mm-hmm. our love for God is not such that we're there to satisfy God's desires because it turns out he's God. He doesn't need us. Right? He doesn't have needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're not uh, you know, like the, the ancient Babylonians who believe that, uh, you know, in Marduk... Uh, defeats Tiamat in the, the Babylonian epic Enuma Elish, right? he uh, then creates man to be a slave for the gods and to toil uh, to, to serve the gods. And you know, we don't get that in the creation story. Right? We're created so that God can uh, serve us mm-hmm. uh, and, and can you know, testify to, to his own glory by doing good things for us. Um, and we love him out of, out of gratitude for that. Um, so there's a, a desire to be one with God that I think is, is different um, than the desire that uh, Winston has at the end of 1984, which is, yes, to be one with Big Brother. I mean, there there is that, but it's it's a oneness with Big Brother that comes from being consumed by Big Brother, from having nothing left of yourself, and everything that you have is is then replaced by Big Brother and is is dedicated to serving Big Brother. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know the love we have for Christ is yes, we're made one with Christ, we're filled with Him. You know, He is in us, and we in Him, and yet. We are most ourselves when that is the case, um, mm-hmm. and most truly ourselves. Um, so there is that difference. I think we could uh, probably take more time than we have to work out precisely uh, where, where that uh, difference falls, but that hopefully is a start to an answer. Yeah, and I think that start to an answer is, is a good place to end. 
Thank wait, you. Wait, oh, wait, go I ahead. I do have one, one quote I want to share. So, oh, yes, know, I started this on a, on a pessimistic note, but I, I think we should end on a note of optimism. <laughs> uh, because, you know, as Christians, we have hope in all things. Uh, we may not be optimists, but we can be hopeful. Uh, Evelyn Waugh, the great author, wrote to Orwell about 1984 this, quote, I think that it is possible that in 1984 we shall be living in conditions rather like uh, those you show. But what makes your version spurious to me is the disappearance of the church. I wrote of you once that you seemed unaware of its existence now when it is everywhere manifest. Disregard all the supernatural implications if you like, but you must admit its unique character as a social and historical institution. Believe it is inextinguishable, though of course it can be extinguished in a certain time and a certain place. The brotherhood which can confound the party is one of love. Not adultery in Berkshire, and still less throwing around vitriol in children's faces. And men who love a crucified God need never think of torture as all-powerful. Ah, oh. Wow, you're right. That's the place to end. That's fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you, yes. Thank you. Thank you, Connor, for being here. Raymond, we miss you. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com. Check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast or email us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is produced by Raymond Docapil and Sophie Klomperens. Our special guest today was Connor Daniels. And our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we will actually be discussing the 1987 Danish drama Babette's Feast. Until then, friends, Big Brother is watching you. I know you can see something inside the one part of me.